Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we continue in our series uh, on Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, and this message, Jesus, the glory uh, of God. And really, the song we just sang, I, I, we sang three of my favorite Christmas songs just now. Uh, you know, what child is this is not my favorite, but that is the, that's the question we're answering when we talk about who Jesus is in the early days of this series. What child is this? And just before we get into this, I'm just super compelled to uh, just begin our time uh, with a, just a brief word of prayer. You know, unless your head is stuck in the sand, you know that uh, a devastating series, uh, series of tornadoes uh, went through the south and just, just wiped out whole cities. And they're still counting the deceased. Uh, dozens of people are dead. And I just was thinking today, what a heavy is hanging over those communities right now. And those rescue workers, families of those who've died. And uh, let's, uh, let's not be so myopic that we can't have compassion on our brothers in the flesh in different places in our country and around the world. Would you agree with that? Let's pray together. Our God, thank you so much. We know that you are God, and we believe in your word when it says that, uh, that when you flooded this world, you were still on your throne, as the psalmist puts it. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. And you have always been on your throne. And we realize that sin affects everything, us personally, for sure. <clears throat> but it affects the world and its weather systems. And, and uh, all of those people in those cities, in those towns, no doubt, were making plans for Christmas. And just like we have, just like we've done, just like we're thinking about. And Lord, all of them have been completely changed and rearranged. We pray that you would grace those communities with your love, with the people of God who are around there helping others, encouraging these heavy-hearted ones. Bless the rescue workers and all those who are helping in this tremendous tragedy. And help us, Lord, not to be so myopic that we can't have compassion as your son, the Lord Jesus, had compassion on us. And so we exercise our compassion through prayer, asking you to do special things during these heavy days to come down there. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, John chapter 1 if you go there, imagine as we get going here <clears throat> this morning, imagine getting an opportunity to preach the gospel, not to dozens or hundreds, but thousands of people, and then being told, don't give a gospel invitation for people to be saved. That's exactly what was put on me several years ago. Exactly what was put on me. When we opened up new ground in the northern part of Togo, started a new hospital, which is now going, uh, I got to be there at the very beginning where they put the spade in the ground. My wife and I and Doug was videoing it. I, I got to preach before not a couple of thousand, but like they thought, but 6,000 up to 8,000 people. They were literally hanging in the trees all around us in 100 plus degree weather. 
It was an amazing opportunity. Uh, in fact, when they first asked me to do this, they said, you get 30 minutes to preach. I thought, awesome. About a month before I went there, they said, you got to cut it down to 20 because uh, there's going to be lots of dignitaries and things, uh, individuals are going to be there. I, I said, okay, that's fine. And about a week or two before I, I, I left, they said, we got to cut it down to 10 or 15 minutes because uh, we got to interpret it through two languages. They said, quick, get me there before you run to me to a, to a prayer, you know. But... The real challenge to me came in an email just days before I left. And uh, it was really the providence of God at work. And just before I opened that email, I'd gone to lunch with my friend Dave Heisterkamp, who pastors Lakeside Fellowship, our flagship church plant. We did that often, we, but we had lunch, but, and it was just, pri, uh, you know, just prior to the weekend. And he was just unusually going off on the message he was preaching. You've got to hear this outline. You've got to hear my exposition. And he, he's, he was just going crazy over Mark chapter 2. And uh, he, you know, that's, that's the passage where the paralytic is let down. They, they opened up the roof. They let him down. Remember, Jesus sees, he sees their faith. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. You remember that? And, uh, and then all of his detractors are going, what kind of blasphemy is this? Who can forgive sins but God alone. And, you know, Dave is telling about this, you know, and, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't you get it? I'm God. <laughs> but it's just all right there. And I just remember leaving that lunch and thinking, I can't believe I've never seen him so animated over a sermon he was about to preach. I went home and opened up my laptop, and there was an email from a missionary who had been in northern Togo already for a couple of years. He was the boots on the ground. He was already working with these folk Muslims. And I didn't even know him. But he said, Pat, I'm so excited about you coming. I'm looking forward to your message before these thousands of people. But if I could be so bold as to ask you, listen, these folk Muslims, they don't have a concept of Jesus as God, much less one who could forgive them. May I be so bold as to ask you, rather than lay out the gospel and call them to a decision, to just sort of set us up, those of us with the boots on the ground who are already working with them, set us up to do that. And, and just sort of putting into their minds that Jesus is God and that he alone can forgive their sins. And, and, and just sort of get them thinking. And I remember reading the email thing, thinking, I mean, what kind of thinking is this? I don't get to lay down the gospel? And then he said this. He said, you could kind of do it like, like the passage in Mark chapter 2. Where Jesus, you know, uh, forgives that man of his sins. And, you know, his detractors said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Maybe you could do it like, I mean, I'm literally reading this, hearing Dave Heisterkamp one hour earlier coming at me. And I got on and I said, I said, I will obey. And that's what I did. I laid, I, I, preached that, I preached that very passage in submission to that missionary. And I held off from calling them to a decision. Worked out pretty good. There's four or five churches been started since then. Amen? And here's one of them right here. Here's a church where they're meeting right now as a result of that meeting. And here's a family, this picture taken this morning. This isn't a family. This is our missionary, Ben Randall, with another family taking them to church. 
People are getting saved. Amen? Praise the Lord. You can clap. Now, to go back to that idea that only God can forgive sins, I have news for you. That's a true statement. Only God can forgive sins. It's also true that Jesus told that man, who is that paralytic, just before he healed him, his sins were forgiven. That makes Jesus God. But Jesus was more than God. He was the God-man. He was God and man. And as God, he could forgive sins. As man, he can relate to you. He can relate to me. He can relate to every heavy, every burden, every difficulty, every loneliness, whatever you're going through. He can relate to you because surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, right? Just last week, first service, we told you about it right after when the concept of God and man came together. It made sense to Rick, who was again in the service today. He trusted Christ as Savior. And in the, in the, I mean, everything's happened in the first service. I'm just letting you guys know that right now. Because right over here in the first service was another woman who came to Christ just a couple of weeks ago. And she came up to me not, not 30 minutes ago and she said, Pat. I never realized till today that Jesus, or till last week, that Jesus was God. I just, this is so incredible, so awesome. So listen, Jesus as the God-man is the glory of God. And remember we started out last week in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And we established that Jesus is indeed God. Now, we're going to focus, while we'll pull other truth in, we're going to focus on one verse of Scripture, skipping down to the 14th verse, John chapter 1 and verse 14. Look at it there. And the Word became flesh. See it? And dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We're talking glory. Jesus is the glory of God. That's why we worship him. And by the way, you only worship God. Amen? There's an awesome scene toward the end of the book of Exodus where Moses is dialoguing with, with God. Almost, I don't know if he's getting chummy with him or what, but he says, please, will you show me your glory? You remember that? <laughs> God, God says to, to Moses, he replies, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and what? You're not gonna, you can't see me in, my, in the fullness of my glory and the resplendence of my glory and live to talk about it. So God, in order to accommodate Moses, you remember, he sticks him into the cleft of a rock. Remember that? Puts his hand over it, puts his hand over the slit, and then passes by Moses and shows him, the Hebrew says, his back parts, like the trailing end of his glory. That's all that he could take. So when we're talking about the glory of God, we're talking about something you and I are going to have to be fitted to be able to withstand. And so if 
No one can see God in, his, in the fullness of his glory and live to tell about it. How does God show himself? Well, the answer is, like every good Sunday school answer, <laughs> right? It's Jesus. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, I love that, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. That phrase, made him known, is where we get our English word, exegesis. He's exegeted God. That means to bring out the sense. He's brought out the sense of God. Remember what he said to one of the disciples in John 14? Uh, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen what? You've seen the Father. But how? How could Jesus, being God, reveal God's glory without killing everybody he encountered? Let me suggest from our passage today, by concealing it in his flesh, by revealing it in his life, and by appealing to it with his love. That's how he did it, all right? First, Jesus demonstrated God's glory by concealing it in his flesh. And you know the expression, here it is, the word became what? Flesh, and I know some of you have heard this story, but it just bears repeating of the little girl during a thunderstorm who runs fearful out of her bedroom, into her parents' bedroom, dives into their bed, gets between them, shivering in fear. And the dad says, what's wrong, honey? Well, you know, this storm, I hate this storm. They make me so scared. And she says, honey, you know that the Lord Jesus is with you. You don't need to be afraid. You can go back to your bed. She goes, I know that, dad, but right now I need somebody with skin on him. Jesus was God with skin on. And even, I mean, we, I just mentioned these. I love the Christmas, how, how many of you love the Christmas songs, right? You, you just love them. I love them too. But we do have to sing intelligently. And I'm not telling you not to sing this line, but you know it. I mean, th there is a Silent Night, one of the favorite. We'll definitely sing that, Holy Night. Uh, that was actually written in 1816. Joseph Moore wrote it. He was, a, he, was, he was a pastor in a church where actually the organ had broke down on Christmas Eve, and he played, he wrote the song and played it with his, with his guitar. But here's one of the lines. You know it. Silent night, holy night, son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. So radiant beams from thy holy face? I don't think so. The deity, the godness of Jesus was concealed. I mean, you got one thing, right? Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Amen? Just to confirm this, I mean, because some of you have these, you know, these romantic you know, pictures of Jesus with light coming out of his face, you know, laying in the manger or something, you know. Uh, listen to what the prophet said 700 years earlier. Here's how Isaiah described Jesus. Here's how he described him. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Now, just stare at that for a second. You know what that tells me? That tells me no halos, no striking beauty, 
No rough, tough, and buffness. And no radiant beams. I had a brother, he would say, you know, all babies, they all look like Mr. Magoo when they're born. (laughs) I didn't say that. My brother did. (laughs) And I'm not saying that Jesus looked like Mr. Magoo, but I will say this. There wasn't anything spectacular about him. Wesley got it right, and Whitfield helped him with this great hymn, the greatest of all the Christian hymns. Hark the herald angels sing. This hymn is almost the Bible in song. It's so chock full of good theology. And it's there where we sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Amen. Is it any wonder John, who realized this, and years and years after the fact, in fact, perhaps as much as 50 plus years after hanging out with him, wrote these words in John chapter one. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of God. He's just thinking, I saw him, I touched him, I held him. God, veiled in flesh. Jesus demonstrated the glory of God First, by concealing it in his flesh. And secondly, by revealing it with his life. And hence the next expression. And dwelt among us, right? So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You got to love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this. He moved into our neighborhood. The the actual Greek expression means to pitch a tent. It means to tabernacle or pitch a tent or he tented with us. Okay, so when you stay in a tent, you don't stay in it for very long, right? By nature, by their very nature, they're 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 just to be short, they're short-lived, they're fragile. And Jesus became fragile, so to speak. Not sinful, but fragile. And here he is, he comes and Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 declares him as Emmanuel, which is God what? God with us. But John goes on here. He says, he says, he dwelled among us and we have seen his, say it, his glory. Now, are you, are you with me on this? How? How did Jesus reveal God's glory while concealing it at the same time? I think the answer is a couple of fold, at least. He gave us certain sneak peeks throughout his life. Remember those? So here is, here is uh, Jesus. He takes Peter and James and John. He goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? Matthew 17 records it. And suddenly, whoosh, he pulls back. Not all of it, because it would have killed him. But he shows them some of his resplendence. Mark tells us he's, he's so white, the whitest bleach. I mean, there's no bleach on earth that could make him more bright than this. And suddenly Moses and Elijah, you know the story, appear, uh, appear with him. And, you know, they, I, mean, it's, I mean, they're so befuddled. Peter goes, well, you want me to make a hut for you? He's just really looking and sounding really stupid. But here Jesus gave them a, a sneak peek of his resplendence, his glory. John later writes it in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, right? When he sees him in his second coming glory and about falls down like a dead man, which is, you know, if you get all of it, you are a dead man. 
All of that, these sneak peeks. I, one of my favorites is often overlooked. There's a, there's a, remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And here he is sweating blood. And he comes out. Here comes Judas in that co- uh, cohort to arrest him. And they come to him and they say, uh, hey, we're looking for Jesus. You know where he is? He goes, um, that's me. They all fall down. You ever, you ever read that? John 18, verse 6, they all fall down. The liberals say, well, you know, it must have been like a domino effect. One fell, the other, which is almost more miraculous than what really happened. I think what happened was, I think he just gave him, I think he gave him a little flash of his glory right there. And down they went. But the sinfulness of sin, they dusted themselves off and arrested him anyway. In a sense, each time Jesus performed a miracle, he gave us a sneak peek of his glory. In fact, look at the very first miracle, what it says after he did the very first miracle. This, the first of his signs when he turned water to wine, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee, and watch it, manifested his what? Glory. No. What did he manifest? His glory. You can all say it, okay? When I ask you, not the three people down here in the front. (laughs) He manifested his what? Glory. Glory. And his disciples did what? They believed in him. His miracles were displays of his glory with the intent, with the intent that it would draw people to himself, right? Remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3, and the first words out of his mouth are, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles unless God is with him. So what is he saying? He's saying, I'm moved, I'm drawn. There's something about you. There is a glory about you that's drawing me. It's pulling me in, and it would pull him in. And that's why John says at the very end, he says, many other miracles Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these, these seven John records, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. To get your attention, to draw you in. That's my observation of the transformation in my brother Mike's life is what drew me in. I wanted more. One of the very first people I ever led to Christ in ministry was a woman who, when, when I was in her home, she came to Christ along with her husband, and the deacons were interviewing her, and they said, what was it that drew you to Christ? She said, well, there was, when Pastor Pat was talking to us, there was just something in his eyes. Now, I don't, there wasn't radiant beams, okay? But there was some glory. And you might be thinking, we don't have this glory. Oh, yes, you do. If you are a child of God, and I never assume everybody here or watching online is, because some of you need to be saved. But if you're a child of God, hear the words of Jesus the night before he died. When he prayed to the Father, he said, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Have you ever read that? The glory of God in the gospel of God and the person of Jesus is in you wanting to get out. Amen? Follower of Jesus, the glory of God within you is intended to attract others to Jesus. So the question is, does your life reveal the glory of God? What comes out of your life? 
you know, with permission, I share this with you. I, I made the mistake of, of uh, before the service of walking around, greeting several of you, holding a cup of coffee in my hand. And one guy, brand new, brand spanking new Christian saw me. He's excited. Whack, hit me. My, the coffee went all over me. So what came out of the cup what was, it was in the cup all over me. And what, what came out of his mouth... <laughs> It just made me laugh. <laughs> so what comes out of your life when somebody bumps you? Is it the glory of Jesus? Or is it something otherwise? Does his life reveal the glory of God in you? Thirdly, Jesus demonstrated the glory of God by concealing it in his flesh, by revealing it in his life, and by appealing to it with his love. And so John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only son of God, and then full of grace and truth. Not just with grace and truth, but full of it. Jesus put on display the fullness of the grace of God and the truth of God for you. One of my favorite verses talking about the purposes of Jesus' coming for you and for me because we try, to, we try to get our brains around God becoming a man and why do you have to become a man and what does this have to do with you and me? The writer of Hebrews put it like this. I've underlined a little bit for, for you. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I was contemplating what you're looking at here. And I know that some people would say, well, you know, God had to become a man because, you know, otherwise he couldn't relate to us. That is, a, that is bad theology. If God made you, he can relate to you, amen? God didn't have to become a man to relate to you and me, but this is what I thought of. This is what hit me. Jesus didn't become a man to know what you're going through. He became a man to show that he knows what you're going through which was very nice of him, by the way. He knows what you're going through. He's moved into your neighborhood. He's already proven his compassion by dying for you and rising again, right? I've been writing a book for way too long. And so the following words from Joe Stoll really landed upon me. Some of you don't know Joe Stoll. He's hardly a household name, but he's a, he's, a, he's a great preacher, been a great pastor, just retired, actually. He pastored the Moody Church. He, he, he was the president of Cornerstone University, written a whole bunch of books. Uh, I've had a chance to hang out with him once several years ago. It was a lot of fun, great guy. I actually met his dad, who was a leader in the fundamentalist movement of the middle 1900s. I met his dad when he was really, really old. And so several years later, I was talking to Joe, 
And I said to Joe, I said, Joe, what a privilege it was to meet your dad. I said, uh, you must be looking forward to seeing him again when you get to heaven. He goes, well, he's not dead yet. Well, my mistake. <laughs> His dad wasn't even dead yet. <laughs> Unbelievable. I couldn't believe that. Really embarrassing moment. <laughs> this is what I read just the other day. He wrote, when my kids were young, I thought they would be impressed with what few accomplishments I may have had, that they would read my books and be impressed by my speaking engagements. But then, but when, but then I discovered that they hadn't read any of my books and had no idea where I had been speaking. When my oldest son finally read one of my books, he told me the only reason he read it was so that I would stop telling people my children have never read my books. And then he finishes it with this. Let's face it. For the most part, kids are not impressed with our accomplishments. So the only way to bridge the gap is to meet them where they are, to get into their world. That was encouraging and convicting to me. But that's what Jesus did. No wonder he was full of grace and truth, right? So when the Apostle Paul would later write about this glorious dissension of God to become a man, he writes about Jesus as emptying himself, right? In, in, in Philippians 2, he emptied himself. And he did so by taking off the full display of his glory because no man could see it and survive, right? And wrapped himself, his glory, with flesh. And he beautifully illustrated this. We don't normally think of this when we read this, but I want you to now. He beautifully illustrated this the night before he died for you and me, when with his disciples, around the time of the Last Supper, the Bible tells us he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and began to wash the disciples' feet. He illustrated what he did. How could Jesus stoop so low as to lay aside his garment and act as a servant to wash his disciples' feet with water? I was thinking that. That's why I wrote it down. And I thought, easy, compared to the stoop he'd already taken to lay aside his glory, to become a servant, to wash us with his blood. Why? Why all of this? Because the only way God could die was to become one of us, which is exactly what he did. And if that is not an appeal to his love, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. And some of you have never ever accepted this love, not from your heart anyway. The truth of God is still hidden from you. Interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul 
said this in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, if our gospel be veiled, interesting, veiled, hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine on them. That's what you need. Some of you need to come out of your darkness. You're like Nicodemus, or you're like me when my brother was talking with me, and you sense, I don't have this. My life doesn't show the glory of Jesus. But today, it makes sense. And like Rick last week, or like Debbie a couple weeks earlier, it's clicking. It makes sense. Repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, that he died for you and rose again, and you will be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He is your glory, and we have seen this today. Lord, we know that your word tells us we all who know you with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same glory from one level of glory to the next, even by the Spirit of, of God. And I pray that believers in this room, followers of Jesus, would continue on, the, on an upward trajectory of glory. Not their own glory, but your glory coming out of them, drawing others to themselves and thus to you. I pray for those who are still in the dark, the God of this world. Satan himself has blinded their minds. If that's you, dear friend, here or watching online, but you feel the tug, you feel the draw, you sense the glory. Come to Jesus right now. Confess him as the one who died and rose again for you and be saved. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.